0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to FocusCompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at FocusCompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast.
1: All righty, we are ready to get started today. How is everybody doing out there? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in with us here today the Focus Compounding Podcast. Mr. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going over there?
0: It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you?
1: It is going fantastic. We are Very excited to have a special guest on with us here today, Nate Tobik. He is Oddball Stocks, and he is sort of the pioneer right, in the blogosphere. I Mm -hmm. guess both of you, you and him, have been around for a very long time. His Twitter handle is at Oddball Stocks. He is the founder of CompleteBankData.com, the author of the Bank Investor's Handbook. He blogs at OddballStocks.com, and he operates the Oddball Stocks newsletter. Nate, did I get all of that right?
2: You did. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yes, thank you very much for coming on. Where Where are you located again?
2: So I live in uh, right north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, it's wonderful in western Pennsylvania. I grew up in the Midwest, and um, I'm not sure I will ever move away from here except to maybe Florida or at the base of a ski resort. So <laughs> yeah. this this is home now
1: that is that is fantastic well, thank you very much for coming on and you know just a little bit of a prequel I guess so whenever we bring somebody on, I always talk about um, how I'm fascinated with this concept of stories right and how everybody has their own unique story and you can meet someone and then for whatever reason it puts you on a completely different path than what you were doing you know yesterday or two years ago and you know this this topic of stories is something that's just always been um, pretty interesting to me and today we're going to be talking about your story and I'm always interested to hear about how people sort of became um, to be doing what they're doing today uh, so today we're going to be you know kind of going over that with you and you know I'm just kind of curious to hear about you know sort of your background how you got into investing and uh, you know sort of kind of go from there
2: for, for sure. So, um, you know, it's kind of a strange and twisted journey. And, um, you know, although at the same time, when you look back in retrospect, it's kind of cool to see all the puzzle pieces fall in place. Um, but I so I um, I went to college uh, and study computer science. I was into computers. Um, I guess I've always had an entrepreneurial bent. You know, so it would, uh, like I said, I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up, uh, right outside Cleveland and, uh, it was cold and snowy there. And, uh, you know, when it would snow, I'd go around neighborhood, um, hustling to shovel driveways to make money, um, always doing things to, to somehow make more money. And, um, so I, I kind of had that entrepreneurial bent, but computers just utterly fascinated me. So, um, I went to school for it. And I got a job uh, here in Pittsburgh at a startup right out of college. Uh, We were doing um, managed network security. And uh, that was kind of fascinating. And so, uh, you know, working at a startup, these guys would talk about stocks and investing. And um I really knew nothing. I took one economics class in college and I was lucky to get a C because I pretty much showed up for the first two or three weeks and then, um, any exams and that was it. Um, so you know, I, I knew nothing at all. Um, and at the same time I had, um, a grandfather who had done really well in business and had done really well in investing and he, uh, gave me money to, to pay for college, um, that was in stocks. And, um, this was back in the late nineties. So, uh, I, you know, just a little side note, I benefited greatly from that. Whereas my brothers didn't, um, who are a little younger because I was able to cash out and, uh, spend the money down before the market took a dive. Whereas, um, them being a couple years younger, they, uh, you know, they had to cash out at the wrong time, I guess you could say, but anyways, I, you know, so, I didn't know anything about stocks. These guys are talking about them at work and I, um, I'm getting statements saying I owned some stocks that I didn't even know what they were. And, um, so I, I just decided one day I was going to try and figure this stuff out. And this was probably in 2004 and I started on the internet and ended up on, um, I'd read market watch. And then I ended up, you know, reading some of these columnists and, um, from there, I read uh, like the Intelligent Investor and uh, some of these value investing books, and I, that sort of clicked with me. Um, and it clicked because I like to buy things cheap and, and sell them when they're not cheap, and that's just intuitive. And so, um, from there, I, I started to to manage my money to save we we started saving um in a retirement account and i i managed some of this money um that was left over from college which wasn't really much um and and that was the start of the journey and then so in about um 2007 or so this startup i was at was um they were going through a merger and um if you've ever been through a merger it's uh it's really crazy you know this company acquiring you will sell you the moon Everything's going to be awesome. Nothing's going to change. It's going to be even better. And what they're really saying is, um, you know, we have your customers, and you will be out of a job in a couple of months unless you completely conform to, um, you know, what we believe. But I didn't know that at the time, and I was interested in um, finance and investing, and I thought, you know, maybe I should jump ship. I'm. I was burned out with computers, uh, mostly because of the long hours, and. So I started networking and talked to a guy in town who ran about $4 billion. And he said, um, you know, get, get this thing called the CFA, the Chartered Financial Analyst designation. He goes, and, and you could get a job. Here's some people to call. And so I signed up. I took the CFA, uh, the first exam in um, December of 2008. And uh, that was interesting because, you know, I'm sitting in a room and, uh, you know, Chewing the fat with everyone beforehand, and and all these people taking the exam there. Um, I you know I took it in Philly, and they're all at, at Morgan Stanley or um, Wachovia, and it's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have a job. I don't know what's you know what's going to happen. Um, anyways, took that. I liked it. Um, I took the next one. I don't know, 2010 maybe, and um, I ended up failing that. And as I I failed the second one. I started to think, I thought, you know, so I, I did a bunch of networking in the meantime, trying to figure out a job. And, and what it came down to was to be an equity analyst, I was going to have to take a pretty big pay cut and I wouldn't be able to invest my money the way I wanted. So I started to think, man, if I took all those hours I was studying and instead of invest, instead of studying, I researched investments and I just stayed working in technology um, and had more money and saved it, I would probably be a lot better off long-term, you know, just just better off from, you know, the salary differential. And sure. then if you take into effect compounding your salary on top of the, the savings on top of that. So kind of looked at all this. I, I thought that's what I'm going to do. And um, I got a different job in tech that had lower hours. And from from that, I thought, you know, now that I'm researching these names, how do I um, keep track of what I'm thinking about? And so I started this blog, Oddball Stocks. Uh, the name came to me. I'm not sure why. I was sitting in an office, bored to death, and in one afternoon, and I I put this thing together, and um, that that's where it started from. So it was a place just to organize my research, to organize thoughts, and from there it started to grow. Um, it Group and became a lot bigger than I ever expected, uh, and then um, I started a newsletter off of that because a lot of the stocks I was talking about were small illiquid names, and uh, even when I would talk about a, a really terrible illiquid name, the thing would spike like fifty percent, and I, I would write a post, you know, don't invest in this company, and people would buy it, and it's and so I I felt bad about that, and I thought, um, you know. I should maybe move to a different platform. So, I started doing this newsletter and um, still kept blogging at the same time. I started um, this site, like, complete bank data kind of on a um, on a whim, I guess. Not a I, you know. So when I got into investing in banks, I realized there just weren't good tools for investing in banks. And um, and so, being a DIY person, I wrote a a buddy of mine into to creating some of these tools, and um, you know, as it turned out, what we found years later, now five years later, is uh, that was a good start in the wrong direction, and so, um, but that got us started in something, and and you know, kind of got the ball rolling. So, um, I'm still doing. I I put together a couple blog pieces this week. Actually, I I haven't done that in a while. Um, like you say, I I wrote that book, uh, that was a couple years in the making. And, um, that finally came out beginning of this year, which is good. Um, and I'm, I'm doing the software company. That's the, keeps my full-time attention. So, um, you know, I look back and I look back now and, and I, so, you know, what's interesting is I said, all these puzzle pieces fit together. Um, I've been in, in meetings with, um, With clients or with with prospects. And we will be talking about how certain technological solutions meet their needs. And then um, very quickly, we're talking about how parts of their financial statements need to work together to fit into the solution and why those things are important to their company. So, you know, all of the finance stuff I did, worked out because I'm doing a finance a financial tech company. And so, um, you know, we, we've we had kind of interesting conversations with clients about bond duration and um, all sorts of bond math. And at the same time, um, you know, 10 minutes later, we're talking about how often databases are backed up and, and things like that. So, you know, the puzzle pieces do fit together. And I, I kind of look back now and I took this crazy journey and somehow it put me into a spot where, where everything works together.
1: Yeah. And it's sort of like you, again, when we were talking about stories, how failure of the CFA sort of sets you on this path that's become something much more than you probably could have even imagined or if you were to just become an equity analyst or whatever.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, I if I would have finished that CFA, I would have been sitting in a tower right now wearing a suit yeah. and listening to you guys thinking man how do i get on this track what, <laughs> yeah. what do i have to do to to do something like this yeah i i totally agree um, yeah
1: it's it's so, interesting cuz it's like for yeah. me for example um, you know, I just happened to be scrolling through Twitter one day. I read about, I would read Jeff's writings for a very long time. And I just was scrolling through Twitter and I came across his Twitter and I saw that he lived in Plano, um, which is a suburb of the Dallas area. And, and I was like, wait, that's kind of weird. My office is in Plano and maybe he, you know, he's obviously probably within 10 minutes away. And then I reached out to him and we started meeting up. And probably about like, what, a year into mm-hmm. meeting up or something like that, we sort of decided to build, um, you know, this company, I guess, Focus Compounding. Which really just started off as a blog. And, you know, from there, we, he kind of pushed for me to start this podcast, right? Yeah. You, you, you pushed for me probably like, what, three or four times. I was really mm-hmm. never about it just because, I don't know. I mean, what do I know about podcasting? Okay. You know, it's so yeah. putting yourself out there. And look at that now. We're, we're talking to you from, you know, Pen, uh, where, where you are, in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And it's, it's, it's interesting how it all just sort of fits together.
2: Oh, it does. And, you know, and I owe a lot to you, Jeff, because I would read your stuff. And I actually, you had a blog i don't know what 2006 or something i don't remember the name of it but i dug it up on Mm archive.org and um would go through some of the old um some of the old writings and one one thing that i liked from there was you wrote um a letter to some bank um Mm -hmm. Uh, Some sort to, of like an activist letter. Do you remember yeah, this?
0: Bank insurance. So an in an, bank an ins- insurance company, yeah, that served banks. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and that was really interesting to me. So when I first got into investing, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. So, you know, you could just write a letter to these guys extolling <laughs> yeah. them to to try something. And um it that that was really cool. And then um the other thing was, um, I I had always owned some international stocks. And that's what um, my my grandfather who gave me a couple of those stocks to start. They, they were foreign. But um, you wrote some blog pieces about how easy it was to look at these other companies internationally. And that got me started down a, a road. Um, I started looking at, at companies in Europe. And before that, I had mostly looked at smaller American companies. Um, so, yeah, it's... You know, there's a lot of um, network effects when you you start to meet people and, and read different things, and um, you're willing to just kind of be out there. Yeah, and no, it,
1: that's, yeah, I completely yeah. agree. You get the snowball snowball rolling.
0: So your um, sure. your blog is called the Oddball Stocks. So could you tell us what exactly defines, in your mind, an oddball stock? What makes a stock an oddball stock?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I when I started that. Um, you know, I used to read a a bunch of value investing blogs and, and I, a lot of them were always the same sort of names, right? So, um, kind of, and maybe this is now migrated to Twitter, but in the, you know, the investing, I don't know, consensus or whatever, say there's 50 or a hundred names that everyone seems to like. And, and right now everyone's writing about, um, facebook or instagram or jd or whatever these companies are and and i thought well i I want to look at companies that aren't those and so these are companies no one else is going to stumble on these are small companies and you know part of it was also it was just easy for me so i was thinking at the time after i did the cfa um there was there was a so the cfa is very efficient market and um I remember in the the equity book, the second level two equity book. There's a thing saying that um, if you don't have a lot of money, you can potentially beat the market through special situations and small unknown names. And um, but this isn't a scalable or professional strategy. And I thought, well, I'm I'm not a scalable or professional guy, so you know something <laughs> like that could work for me. And um, and so I was thinking. I want to look at names that that are the names not everyone else is looking at. So um, because of this, I started looking at small stocks just because they were easier, and um, I would look up these like net net stocks, and um, because it was easy to, to analyze, you know, you say um, so. I'll, I'll say the f- the first one I ever bought, I believe, was um, it was Rackspace, or I think it was Rackspace or or SGI. Um, I don't remember which the name went one from one to the other. And, um, it was something where it had, um, uh, you know, we'll, I'm just making up numbers here. Cause I don't remember the exact details, but this was in 2008 or 2009. It had something like say $8 a share in current assets. And of that six or $7 a share was, was cash and shares traded for five bucks. And there was really no liabilities. And I, I kept looking at this thinking, this doesn't seem like a real thing. Something must be wrong with this. And, um, to the point where I was so skeptical that I, I, so I bought a position and then I fully hedged it with puts. And so I, I bought some puts that were like, I don't know, 20 or 30% less than my, my, um, my buy price. Cause I thought something must be wrong with this. And if the bottom does fall out because I'm just not getting it, then, then I'm okay. And, um, I, I just couldn't believe that there would be this company selling for, for less than its current assets. And they were so, they were so simple to analyze and, um, it worked out and I lost money on the the hedge and, um, And I, I kept looking for these things. And so those, those were some of the oddball stocks. I used to look for really weird esoteric things. Um, just because I, I kind of find that interesting. And, um, you know, like for example, I I was looking at this yesterday. Did you know you could create, um, a mutual telephone company in the U S to serve a rural area and you could get the government to pay for, for almost all of it. So like there's, probably thousands of these and it'll be something like the stark county mutual telephone company and you know all these little organizations i don't know i find something like that fascinating Sure. And, no, um, yeah that, that's, that's so, pretty
1: interesting yeah did you were you involved in the japanese net nets a couple of years ago jeff you wrote you invested in, in japanese net nets and we've yeah, talked about that years in, ago, yeah five or six years it, yeah. ago were you involved in that as well
2: nate i was and here's a funny story about that so um I, I mean, everyone was kind of talking about that, and um, Manish Pabrai had this video about why you should invest in these things, and I watched it. I was captivated, and um, about a year later, I was in Toronto, sitting next to him, as um, in this little, little um, hotel bar, as he was like giving a talk, and he was like, "Oh, the Japanese net nets, what a waste of time," and that was a big. That was a big mistake. And I was sitting there thinking, maybe a mistake for you, but so far it's worked for me. And it's, um, you know, so I, the, the trade worked phenomenally and it provided a lot of the money to, um, as a down payment on our house that, that I'm in right now. Wow, so, that's even better. um, it, you know, it's one of those things like it, it worked, um, it worked well. So I, too bad that he got out of the trade, yeah. but, uh, his video was was dead on. <laughs> it's
1: funny how that works out. Did you buy like a basket of them, or how'd you sort of structure that?
2: Yeah, so I did. I I did a basket of them. Um, so I tried a bunch of different things, and this was a great learning experience. And um, here's why. So I started out looking for the cheapest of the cheapest, and I had this really complicated spreadsheet where I was scoring everything, and I was looking for the the cheapest once. And then that became uh, paralysis by analysis because it's like, well, is something that trades at 20% net cash, is that better than something that trades at 30% net cash, but has earnings? And, um, I just got stuck. And so what I ended up doing was I just bought probably a dozen of these things. And then, um, I don't know. Maybe a year later I bought another half dozen but I what I noted in the year that had passed was the companies with earnings did better so I bought net nets that were at um really low enterprise value to um you know EBITDA or operating earnings some sort of a really low multiple like that and I would even buy some that were right above uh, net current assets that were at like half a book value, but they had earnings and a decent return on equity. And, um, that, that, those ones actually worked out much better, and I dumped some of the earlier ones and put that money in, in these later ones.
1: Yeah, that's pretty interesting because, Jeff, the way that you structured it was you bought about a dozen as well, right? It was like 10 no, or No, I,
2: I ended up only buying like six. Oh,
1: it was only six. Because you
0: know what I did is I did the same sort of thing that you're talking about. Uh, I came up with a big list and everything. I put out a report on like just summary financials of like 15 of them or something. But what I decided is I could find um, a simple rule, which is negative uh, enterprise value. And as far as I could look back, I couldn't find a loss in their uh, operating income. And anything that matched that criteria, I just bought it. Yeah. Yeah. Did they all work out for you? Everyone or? worked out. Everyone, You yeah. yeah. always ask that. They're like, did a lot not work out? or something? like, no, they all eventually worked out.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. How long was the trade for you? For So, Jeff, how long did you hold it for?
0: Uh, Two of mine were bought out within a year, but otherwise it was a couple years, like two years. That's interesting. What
2: about you, Nate? Yeah, it was probably the same. I, I don't know when I got into it. Twenty... 20- 2013 and we bought this house in 2015 so two three years yeah
0: yeah that's that's yeah, it's almost an exact match and people ask me because i said like what my returns were in it and stuff and they said oh well did you get lucky with those or did you like well, how did you know about those and i said look if you picked any of like you know random sample of these it would be hard not to get returns that would beat you know what you could do in other markets yeah you how did yes. you come across it uh i looked into it because of the tsunami So I looked in and I said, okay, um, you know, uh, something's going on here. There's a one-time event, right, that isn't really going to affect these companies. And so I just looked, and uh, uh, the big Japanese companies that, like, foreign investors like to buy uh, didn't look that attractive to me. So I said, okay, I'll find you know, like the net nets. And yeah. Stuff. But that's how I did it. Yeah. Because I looked and I thought, Oh, these big giant Japanese companies must be great bargains now because of this one time event. Sure. And they weren't, I mean, they didn't seem to be to me. They're not usually as good as big giant American companies and they weren't that much cheaper. So yeah. Uh, yeah so I looked for the really tiny companies. It's
1: just funny hearing, I guess your perspective and the Nate's perspective, how you both were looking at the same thing, you know, but yeah. sort of different, but it's different interesting view. because
0: everyone has seen, uh, uh, um, what Nate's talking about about that like uh, Monish talking about how it didn't work out and yeah. everything and they know that and so they always say like how did it work out for you and it didn't work out for him but he was I guess buying big ones yeah. and uh, but I just said like anyone who did what we're talking about it's not some skill in picking out the business I knew nothing about the businesses yeah. like I read a description of the industry or something and if the industry sounded kind of like a boring industry or something I'd say okay <laughs> that that's fine
1: so were you just looking at like the accounting then really
0: yeah I didn't w- want something that was like we're in real estate and hotel hotels and um process fish and things like you know so as long as it was something that i understood what they said they were doing then yeah it was just bouncy stuff it, it was ben graham stuff
2: it was i i got it i so i became interested in this right after the financial crisis um because there was an article in the wall street journal saying that um the crisis was so bad that's that small companies in japan were trading for less than their net cash and in 2008 2009 I didn't, I didn't know how to invest in Japan, and maybe the tools didn't even exist then. Um, I don't know if Interactive Brokers was around or not, but I bought some sort of a closed-end Japanese small-cap fund on the idea that um, it, was the only, it was the only fund I could find anywhere that invested in small Japanese companies. And my theory was I will have some exposure to this thing and I don't know, maybe I made like 20% on that thing by the time I sold it a couple years later. So that was that was a bad choice. Um, the better choice was just going directly and, and buying these. And um, yeah, it, it works. I mean, I still have, I, I re-upped, I have another Japan company handbook sitting here. Oh, that's and great. Sometimes yeah. I'll page through it. Um, that was a good trade. Yeah, I, I would like to do that again.
1: Yeah, that that's pretty cool. So I sort of want to um, shift gears and talk about, I guess, your portfolio and sort of your process on how you approach investing in companies and, and all sorts of stuff around that. So are you more of a um, concentrated investor, you'd say? Or do you own multiple stocks? I mean, I think everyone has their own little definition of what's concentrated and what's um, like a more diversified portfolio. But maybe you could sort of hit on how you sort of approach that.
2: Yeah, sure. So I... um. I'm I'm probably not concentrated. I will buy little pieces of a lot of things. Um, I don't know. I right now maybe I have. I I don't know offhand. Maybe thirty forty positions. Um, for a while, I was doing just like so. Just like the Japanese stocks, I was also doing small banks a couple years ago, and I would just buy. Um, like a thousand dollars of any bank that I ran across that was cheap. And I ended up with thirty or forty of these things. And then I kept churning that and I I looked at that as is like one position. Um and and that worked out really well too, just like the Japanese stocks that that had the same characteristics and profile. And um, as long as you avoided the duds. And so um you know at, at that time, I don't know, maybe when I when I had uh, say thirty five of these little banks, I probably had another thirty positions, so maybe I had sixty five positions. I, you know, so I don't keep track in any sort of um, structured way. I'll log into the portfolio, and um, I'll just look through their tools, and um, you know, right now I'm probably forty five percent cash, maybe 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 a little less forty percent. And, um,
1: is that like purposely or just because you haven't found
2: ideas or yeah, I've been selling, well, I, I was selling down the banks as they became fully valued. And, um, and I owned a bunch of other banks besides that. So, you know, people would always ask me like, how many bank stocks did I own? And I owned these, I owned that, that basket and I sold most of that basket. Uh, I still have some left. And then I owned a bunch of banks outside of that basket that I thought, on their own had similar, uh, they had similar valuation characteristics, but I just liked them better, or they. I thought that they were better, so um, I had those guys too, and I've sold most of those. Um, there's been a number of illiquid, oddball names, if you will, that I I got out of, um, and and I just it's mostly just sitting in cash. I just don't have things to put it back into, um, so. You know, it's not intentionally, but at the same time, I don't mind either. Um, You know, it's kind of a weird market in that it it just keeps going up, and it, you know, it's like, will it always go up? I mean, maybe it will. I don't know. We'll see.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. What is your opinion on dark stocks? Because we read your write up on Vulcan. Internationals, that yeah. that's a company right jeff and i love how when the when you conclude um that article on how many shares you own of the company you say a single share because you had to go through that whole process to get financials or whatever what's your opinion on that company i guess in dark stocks in general
2: yeah i mean so um i'll answer that i'll answer both questions separately so um i'll answer vulcan first vulcan's an interesting name um you know, it is a pile of bank stocks. Um, I think it's UBS, PNC. They own or owned a building in downtown Cincinnati. And then they have some forest land and they have um, this money losing thing in Tennessee. So, um, I, you know, the shares are probably worth more. Uh, when I first stumbled on it at 40, that was probably the best time to buy it. Even at 80 was a pretty good time. I think it's like one thirty now. Um, I don't know. I don't know if the juice has been squeezed at this point, especially, uh, the CEO or the chairman is he fires off NDAs to everyone. He is claiming he wants to sue people. Um, you know, and that's kind of a warning sign to me. Um, I've often heard with these dark stocks, they say it's, it's either heaven or hell. So, um, they're either hiding something really good or they're hiding something really bad. It's very rarely in the middle. And so, um, you know, I think Vulcan was, was heaven at, at 40 to, to 80 a share. Um, wow. you know, now I, I, I'm not interested in it, but I do still own a share. Um, now other companies that don't report, I think are much more attractive. So like one I really like is coal Creek corporations, CCRK. And, um, same thing, you have to buy a share to get financials. Uh, they're decently shareholder friendly. Um, they own a bunch of timberland down in Tennessee, uh, and they realized that the locals were tearing up their land on, um, quads or, or four wheelers. And so instead of trying to fight the tide, they just decided to build a bunch of, um, quad trails and monetize this thing. And so they, they have, um, ATV trails and they have, um, a RV park there. They have cabins, they have a merchandise store. Um, I mean, it's, and it's crazy. And so if you read reviews of this place, people will, will go there for a vacation. Um, you know, so they'll, they'll camp out for a couple days they will drive their ATV for a couple of days and they will dump 3000 bucks on this place. Um, so they have that. And then they also, they're still cutting down the wood. So you, you know, you have the land value and, and they've actually monetized it. So, um,
1: yeah. Have you like looked I, at KEWL before? We're investing yes. in that for the managed accounts.
2: Keweenaw, yeah. I, I own them. Yeah. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people about that one. That's an interesting situation. Um, I I have a call in to. Um, have you guys talked to to any of management on that? Okay, I. So I I talked to a couple people close to it, and then. At um, someone I I met. He talked to Jamie about it for a while, and I've got to call in him. I need to call him back later today and get the details. Um, you know, that's an interesting thing. Look, I've always been um, – Timberland's like the siren song for me, and I love the woods. I love hiking, and um, this idea that you have something – so, number one, you have land, that they're not making any more of it. It's just there's a limited supply. Um, And number two, you have money growing out of it, basically, and uh, it just continues to grow and it becomes more valuable over time. So, yeah, I I like that. You know, the upside there isn't that awesome. What is it now? 92, 93 or something? I think the Um, stock's
0: at like 92 and uh, it was more expensive before the change in control.
2: Yeah. 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 And, you know, the directors are still dumping shares. I think they're almost done. Um, So you've got that pressure, but yeah, once the, you know, from what I understand they're expecting to harvest more, um, they under harvested, uh, they've got all the vacation land that they want to start to sell at higher values. I don't know if that'll happen. Um, and you know, yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. So
1: I'm kind of curious because you've, you've made a, a business out of banks, right? You have your website, which we could talk about that in a little bit. Um, But I'm curious how you came like to be, I guess, investing in all these different types of banks. Like, what sort of drew you to them? And you know, obviously, you wrote a book about it. Um, So, I guess, how did you start investing in banks? And I guess, why banks?
2: Yeah, I. um, So I owe all of the bank prodding to um, to my friend Ken, who uh, we co-wrote the the investors' handbook, the bank investors' handbook, together. he worked in, um, he did some stuff with financials for years and said, hey, look at these things, they're dirt cheap. And um, we were looking at, he, so he mentioned a couple of things. Number one was mutual banks, which um, he said they're like the net nets of the banking world, and um, which they are. And so banks are kind of confusing when you, you get started with them. Uh, the balance sheet is flipped around and uh, they make money from um, the balance sheet. The balance sheet is what, what drives a bank. And uh, I don't know, it was kind of a challenge. And once I figured out how the accounting worked, which isn't really that that big of a challenge, I think anyone with with basic financial acumen could, could figure it out. Um, once I got in there, I, I had this epiphany. It was kind of like the net-net stuff where uh, net-nets are easy to analyze. And same with banks. You say there's you know, there was about a thousand traded banks at the time. And, um, if you could analyze one, you could analyze a a thousand and compare them all against each other. And, and they're all the same, you know, by and large. And so if you take out the money center banks and, um, and then you lump some of the regionals together, um, outside of that, these guys are all pretty much the same. And, um, so that's what, what kind of got me interested in it. And um, it's a huge space. And you know, it's, it's one of the few industries where I, I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years who say, well, I just invest in bank stocks. And that, that's their portfolio. They might own 20, 30 of these things. And they don't own really anything else that I I've never met. And it's probably because the industry is so big, but I've never met anyone else who says, you know, I only invest in food processing stocks. That's yeah, that's sure. all I do. Yeah. And it's just, um, you know, so but banks have been around since money has been around and, um, it's a time tested business model and it's, You know, it it works.
1: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I was, when I was preparing for this interview, I came across a YouTube video, I think maybe from 2015. And you were giving a talk at some sort of conference and talking about banks. And I think you pitched seven. And the video that I watched, I think it got cut off maybe after you pitched three. But I was checking when you pitched the, the bank and where it's trading at today. And there was one of them I looked and you pitched it at like 15. I think maybe it got taken over at 30 or something like that. Not even like a year or two later. I don't remember the name of the bank. But in the video, you were talking about how you have some sort of rectangle or something. Or, or is it like banks that that earn a return on equity of like eight percent plus or something like that, do you know what I'm
2: talking about? Well, i so I've done a couple videos at conferences. um was it was the video darker or lighter so i I did one up in Toronto. I did one in philly. um I don't know, but yes, they the banks have done. I, the banks have done well that I've yeah. pitched. What, what sort um, of,
1: what do, you, what do you look for? I guess that's probably the better question to ask. What do you look for when you look to invest in these companies? Is it like um, banks that are trading below book value that earn a return on equity above X, or how do you sort of approach that?
2: Yeah. And, you know, so I think it depends on, on the environment. So um, if you could find a bank trading for uh, less than, say, like 60 or 70% of book value, and they're earning a return on equity, that's worth investing in. Um, right now, you know, I looked at some stuff that's more around book value. Um, I, I'm not finding as many banks, but there's, you know, there are um, demutualizations, which are like the net nets. Um, some of those, there's some of those coming out. Right now, there's so much pent-up demand. So basically, demutualization is this: is um, you have a mutual organization, a bunch of people come together, they create a bank, they pull their money, and uh, the depositors own the bank. And because the depositors own the bank, and because it's mutual, they cannot raise outside capital. And um, that's just the nature of this thing. So uh, if the bank wants to grow, they either need more depositors or depositors with more money. And if you're um, stuck in some place that doesn't have great deposit growth, you need outside capital. So, um, what they do is they demutualize and they become a stock corporation, and they um, basically sell stock to the depositors and outside um, outside investors if they um, if they need it need more than what the depositors have, and so um, you know kind of the quick math on this is say you've got a bank with, with 10 million in, um, in equity and they sell a bunch of shares and raise another 10 million in equity. Um, you as a depositor, you paid, you know, 10 million to get 20 million in, in value. And so you're buying it, you know, for like half a book value. And, um, that's, that's where it's like the net net. And these things used to come out and trade like that. Uh, sometimes they'll trade at like 70 or 80% of book, and then they pop like 30%. A lot of people are in it for the pop. Um, they will put deposits at a bunch of banks and then, uh, once it converts, they get the, you know, they get their 20, 30% jump on the first day of trading and they're out. Um, i I don't do deposits, and the reason I don't do deposits is, you know, there's a a time value of money associated with all those deposits, and um, so there's, you know, 483 mutuals in the U.S. right now, Um, might be maybe one or two less than that, but, um, you know, point is, you have money tied up at all of these things, and, um, you know, that could be a couple hundred dollars CD, and you're earning nothing sitting around waiting for this 20 or 30% pop. So what I do is I typically buy right after the IPO or if the price drops, um, or if it's attractive at, you know, a good multiple. And then, um, these things trade up. Usually what happens is they, um, earnings increase somehow management now that they have a profit incentive to work towards decide to, uh, cut expenses, to juice earnings, and um, usually shares double and and trade. And they, they get bought out in, in year three through five um, for something like, you know, they almost always IPO at either eight or 10. And um, shares, um, you know, typically are the buyout is, is between 20 and 25. So um, you could do well with that. Uh, you know, in terms of, of what I want to see in a bank, I mean, I guess it, this is a terrible answer, but it depends. So, um, if there's a bank that's not growing that has, um, you know, a lot of residential loans, I am okay buying that. If it's a lower multiple, um, if there's a bank that's, that's growing really nicely, um, and it's got a lot of, a better portfolio, a lot more commercial lending. Um, I'll pay more for that one. Um, You know, some of it depends on the loan quality, where, where the loans are, um, things like that, but that that's changed and evolved over time, especially as I've become more familiar with, with banks and banking and kind of seen how the sausage is made, um, I, I'm more aware of, of what's going on behind the scenes. So so some of my criteria has changed.
1: What's your opinion on like bigger banks? Like Jeff's invested in um, Frost Bank.
0: Yeah, this is something I wanted to talk to you about because we've talked a lot on the podcast and in other things about banks like Frost, which is a regional bank in Texas. Um, that, and the, basically all the banks I wrote up for my newsletter were, um, I guess they'd be fall more in the category of the kind of banks Warren Buffett might buy, right? So they're usually um, uh, have deposits from businesses and, um, those businesses are also borrowing from them. Right. So, uh, yep. I find that a lot of people, a lot of value investors understand that concept when you talk to them and pitch them that idea. But when you talk to them about some little bank, somewhere with a couple branches and some particular county or whatever, and they it's a real cheap price to book, but the return on equity right now isn't good. Right. And, uh, that's a hard pitch for them. They say, well, it should trade at, uh, you know, uh, uh, price to book of less than one because, you know, it's not earning more than 10% on equity. So why would I buy it? Uh, so I'd like you to just, like try to explain to people why you would want to buy something like that, because I think they don't see the appeal to that. And I think it's important to explain that because that's the biggest hurdle that I've seen talking to people about banks is, is that kind of bank where you have a low return on equity, but you're getting in at a discount.
2: Th- that's, yes. And so that's a paradox, right? And, um, I've been, so, um, I do this newsletter with, um, with Colin and he writes, um, um, and he, he and I have been talking about this and his, his point is, and this is a great point and it's something I've been thinking about. So you have a loan to some, I don't know, we'll say like a feed store, right? And you're getting six or 7% and, um, as a bank. So You've got this basket of loans at say 7%, and um, you get cheap deposits from the community that cost almost nothing. And so you're taking cheap deposits, you've got this loan at 7%, and then you lever the thing up. And at the end of the day, after you do all of that, you're making 3%. And it's like, well, you're making less than the coupon on your loans. And you're a levered institution. So, you know, that doesn't seem to make sense, right? And and in that, you know, what I've said with that is, that really puts the, the word community in community banking, because in that way, that's really, a, that's, it's a community organization because it's able to provide this cheap capital uneconomically. Um, but the thing is this is, so if you think about it like that, people will say, geez, that's, it's just not worth it. Um, you know, it's earning 3%. Why would I I invest in this thing? It should trade at 30%, 40% a book. And that's just short-sighted. And here's why. Because the deposits are cheap, and if the notes are good, that has value to someone else. So just because this bank can't run a profitable institution doesn't mean someone else can't. And, And these things are always combining and always merging. And so... If you take a bigger bank and you put in your processes and you spread out those expenses over a larger um, asset pool, it drops, and suddenly the return on equity shoots up. And if you have a a large enough asset pool to spread this over, um, you know you could turn that three percent return on equity to maybe a ten percent return on equity without Changing that asset or deposit mix it's just changing the the formula for expenses and um, and bankers know that I mean that that's the whole name of the game and so um, investors have a problem with that because they say, well who would ever buy a single branch in the middle of nowhere Well I mean that has value there's there's value to the deposits and there's value to those loans and um, you know I'll say this is there are lenders who are battling over these loans in the middle of nowhere and trying to grow their book of business in the middle of nowhere. Um, so you know, there's significant value to that stuff. And just because maybe you're in a city or it doesn't make sense, why would would someone be doing that? Um, you know, it that's a real market, and and so there is final value. Um, to those things but yeah in terms of frost bank i mean i've looked at them we i i always have to laugh when i see your frost because we used that bank um in a bunch of our demos as for a long time that was uh just because it's it's easy to remember easy to type and um it you know something would always come up um when we used it so that was like a demo bank for a long time but yeah um Frost seems to have a good business. You know, a regional bank is, is a little bit different. Um, a lot of the, the focus is on the commercial side. And uh, they do a lot of things where they'll originate loans and um, and then sell pieces to small banks, which that's actually another. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people who aren't as into this um, quite get that. But, you know, what will happen is Frost will say, we want to do a, I don't know, $5 million or $10 million deal with some manufacturing company. And we really don't want to hold this whole thing. So what they'll do is they might have a, a network of, of smaller banks in Texas that they know are interested in having exposure to a manufacturing company in Austin, but they don't have the ability to uh, to actually generate that loan themselves. So what they'll do is they'll just sell it as like a participation loan and they'll break that thing apart and sell pieces of it to banks and make a little extra money on top. Um, and then they de-risk themselves. They, they don't have the risk of that whole loan and, um, the participant banks get, get some exposure to, to a loan that they wouldn't have had exposure to, um, otherwise.
1: Sure. Outside of banks, um, are you pretty agnostic where the type of companies that you look for, or is your portfolio pretty much structured bank only?
2: No, I'll invest in anything. Um, I, I, well, you know what? I don't really do uh, much like biotech or biology stuff. Um, and that's just because I, I was, I never understood that stuff. I, I got really bad grades when I tried to do like chemistry and, um, to me, the the biology is just, you know, so um, I understand technology, I, you know, how things work down at these crazy levels. I, I get all that. And I know why, you know, one solution makes sense over another one. Um, you know, at the same time, bodies kind of almost seem magical. You know, it's like, I don't know why some days after I run, I feel awesome. And other days, you <laughs> know, my one knee hurts. I don't yeah. know. Like, what? why? Yeah, I, sure. <laughs> a mystery um so i i don't i don't do um like biotech companies um yeah but otherwise i'll i i will invest in in most i mean there's other things like i don't invest in airlines usually um but it's you know they're just some of those cyclicals like that i i try and stay away from that because you know it's going to crash uh it's just a matter of time and um But yeah, otherwise, it it doesn't really matter.
1: Sure. How do you go about research or like how do you go about finding ideas? Do you just like Jeff, for example? People, a lot of people bring you ideas, like they know what you would look for. And those, yeah, actually,
0: this is a question I wanted to uh, ask you because I know you write about oddball stocks, and I wrote about some illiquid stocks. Does it ever surprise you how stocks that probably when you're starting out, you thought, oh, no one's looking at this? When you write about it or you start to talk about things, people come to you and they've done a lot of research on it, and there's a small community of people who like know about these things. Does that ever happen? That's all Timberland Uh, with you, with you, yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, so I don't, um, just my personality. I enjoy researching things, but my process is kind of this. I look at something and I try and poke holes in it as quick as possible. And if I can't, then I'll invest in it. So, um, you know, I'll look and it's, there's no holes to poke. And so it kind of passes. And and so I invest and, um, you know, investing is kind of like a probability thing, right? So you're, you're saying there's a greater chance of a gain than a loss. And that, that's why you're investing. Um, <clears throat> I don't, um, I like the whole stories of these things, I don't really get into as much. Um, but what I have become, you know, what I've found is I would invest in a name or write about a name. And then people who are really into these names and they're saying, you know, the, the one director's second cousin, you know, they have been nibbling at some shares and I know this because their next door neighbor you know has A this mutual them. contact and and I'm like I, I don't even know the directors' names because yeah, yeah, to sure. me that that isn't make it or break it on the investment. But you know people get really into these things and um you know they're trying to decipher the smoke signals coming from um you know from the office and it's like well they you know normally they have they leave six lights on in the front windows but this week it's only been three so i think that might mean something yeah and um i I mean sometimes that's true uh other times it you know it it's just people are people and and they aren't totally predictable
1: sure oh that's that's really interesting and you've you've said before that price you think is the most important
2: information point when investing why is that yeah i i think it is and um you know, because so these little dark companies, there's a hassle factor to them, right? So a lot of brokers won't let you invest in them anymore. And, uh, it's hard to get information. Sometimes you have to kind of nag the company to get information. Um, and at a certain price, it's not the, it's not worth it, but at another price, at a lower price, it's always worth it. And so I, um, for a while, I kept running across companies that were like one or two times earnings. And, um, I mean, that's cheap. And, and they always had huge problems. And so it'd be like some, you know, a man, there's one I'm thinking of. The manager was, the company probably had a $10 million market cap, and the manager was making a couple million bucks. And, uh, I thought, oh, this is, this is so egregious. How could I ever invest in this? And I, there's a bunch of other ones. They were all, look, when you get down to that level, it's just crazy stuff. Yes. Yeah, different um, game. But what I found is one times earnings or two times earnings is universally too cheap for a company that trades universally. And it could be the craziest thing in the world where management is, you know, they're sucking away 80% of earnings. Um, but at two times it's too cheap. And, in every one of those cases, even the worst of them, they doubled or tripled, and you know maybe at six times earnings, yeah, that that might be reasonable. But one or two times, that's not reasonable. So, um, you know, at a certain price, and when the price gets low enough, those things suddenly become attractive, and you could hold your nose for a lot more when it's it's really cheap. And you know, now in the market, the problem is. A lot of these companies that have issues, people say, "Well, small value stocks—they, you know—they're cheaper, but they all have problems." So I, and I agree. Um, and at the current current multiples, it's not worth investing in. But uh, when it's a couple of times earnings, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll take the guy who, who is pillaging the company. Um, I would prefer that they don't. But you know, you could still make a ton of money when you just buy obscenely cheap companies and 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 that's true with anything you know so i i like to i mean i just like i like finding things cheap and and flipping them um i'll do this with like tangible goods on the side and um i it's just it it's it's a fun thing like my um oldest son and i we found this little niche we have been buying um lego sets and um And then we flip them on eBay. So we we've been able to find a way to get them cheaply. And so my office has a bunch of these Lego sets. And you know we 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 bought one recently for seventy five bucks. That we it's like we we like there's certain characteristics just like a stock. So we're looking for like vintage things. And you know right now it's out there for like three hundred dollars. Nice. And um, I I mean you know you, you can't really make a living on this, but it's it's fun to do. And I, I mean, I would do this with anything. I, I've, it's like anytime I see an opportunity like that, it isn't just, it isn't just stocks. If someone, I, um, I had a friend, he was looking at a car and it was, um, it, a friend, a friend of theirs was going to sell it to to him. And, um, it was underpriced, but they were giving him a deal by like five or 6,000 bucks and he's like, I just don't know if I should buy it. I said, Look, if you decide not to buy it, I will buy it and then yeah. I will resell it and make that money. Yeah, sure. And he's like, You'd really do that. I said, I, uh, you know, without any hesitation, without even seeing the vehicle, I would do that. And he, he was like, Well, if that's what you would do, that I, then I would buy <laughs> Yeah, He bought <laughs> it. Um, but any time there, it doesn't have to be a stock. Um, anything that I could find like that, I will just buy cheap. And then if there's a, a ready market to, to flip it into.
1: Sure. Now, that's awesome. So I sort of want to shift gears here. So you are the founder, and we're going to talk about your, your complete bank data in a second. Um, you know, but you, so you have complete bank data. You, you blog at Oddball Stocks. You're an investor. I believe I saw on Twitter that you have four kids. How on earth did you find time to write a book? And maybe you could talk about how that experience was and, um, you know, sort of kind of go into it with that.
2: Yeah. Uh, um, and that's a great question. So here's here's the story on when I found time. I, so every year I go out to Utah to ski. Um, and I just, I love to ski. I try and ski every week here in Pennsylvania. Um, and then I, t- I try and take a trip out to Utah to ski for a couple of days. So... I don't know. A couple of years ago, I thought, man, I should write a book on banking, um, and I thought that because when I got into banks, there was no book. Um, there, you know. So if you are looking for anything else in investing, there's a billion books that you could find, and people were passing around this uh, community bank investing book. Some guy, some fund manager, wrote that was like a PDF. Oh, I've actually. And, I have, I have um, that. Yeah, you have that. Yeah, and. You know the when it was sent to me, they're like, "This is good, except skip the second two thirds because it it really is it doesn't matter anymore because it's changed." <laughs> sure. And so I read like a third of it, and um, so I thought, you know, I what I wanted to do was write the book that I wanted. I wish I had. And so um, on a plane flight to Salt Lake, I started, and I worked for four or five hours and, I don't know, wrote a couple of chapters. And then uh, it sat there for a year until I went out to Salt Lake again and I wrote some more. Um, And then I started to, I don't know, in the year after that, I started to think like, I should really kick my own butt and finish this thing. And um, I'm not really a, a structure type person. So, something like that was, was daunting. So what I did was I, um, I have this little iPad, the iPad, the tiny one, and, um, I have a, uh, Bluetooth keyboard for the thing. And so what I would do is I subscribed to word on there and I sat down every morning. Um, and I actually sat in a different room than my office. I, and I wouldn't, I drink my coffee and I wouldn't start the day until I had written for, I don't remember what it was, 10 or 20 minutes. And I would just kind of time myself. And so I forced myself every day to write for that block of time. I think it was 20 minutes. And so, and, and so some days that was like 10 pages and other days I would just start to write and it would be an hour and a half later I would stop um, and, and through doing that, I forced myself to, to complete it and then um, send it to Ken. So I, I had worked with um, Ken on the newsletter and um, I would write things and then he would rewrite it. And that's kind of how we work. And so I sent him the book. He looked at the manuscript and was like, okay, this is great. And then he went to town on it and then sent it back and I made changes, additions, sent it back to him he did it again and then at we decided we we're like look we could keep setting this back and forth forever it has to at some point it has to be good enough so um we uh put it out there and um you know put it out for sale and it started to sell and it's um it's doing well and it's interesting the feedback a lot of people say it's a good book except and the except is always Uh, There's no tutorials or case studies and uh, people don't like that. And um, that was very intentional on my part because that stuff ages so poorly. And I wanted to write a book that aged well and explained banking concepts at a general level that, um, you know, that community bank PDF that's floating out there, a lot of what All of his examples, the reason it doesn't matter is because A, the industry's changed, B, the um, economic environment has changed, and C, regulations have changed. And so it's like, between all those things, you could be misled, right? And um, so I wanted to avoid that. So that's why we didn't include the case studies. We might put something together with that in the future um, as a follow-on book. Um, But that's got a much shorter lifespan than than the first one. And... um, so it's good it's good to get it out there we've talked about doing a book um, you know an oddball investing book um, i've written something around two thousand pages on the blog, and so you know distilling that down into to maybe two hundred would be kind of a a cool challenge yeah um,
1: yeah it's pretty interesting and it's kind of like Jeff, for example. People have approached him a couple times, right, to write a book, and I've asked you uh, <laughs> no, several
2: times. People have
0: approached me saying, "Oh, I'll edit it and I'll do this." Yeah, and, yeah, it doesn't work out. Yeah, that, well, I've always <laughs> asked you too, like if, if
1: you want to write a book, because you've written for so long, and you, you always say you just don't think that there's no stuff well. That you, well, we
0: could m- m- ask you about this. I mean, the thing that why I say that I don't want to do that is that's a trade off between publishing stuff that people can read now online versus the book you know, you're writing a book instead of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it,
2: it hits a different audience, I yeah. think. So, um, I mean, for example, I was at a, one of my kids basketball practices last winter and, um, there's a, a guy who he's running for state Senate, but i I've, I've known him just kind of, um, through mutual friends. And so we're sitting there and, um, talking and he was talking about investing a little bit. I said, I, I wrote a book um, on bank investing. He goes, Oh, well, how do I buy it? I said, Just, it's on Amazon. So yeah. he, he pulled it up on his phone and he's like, Oh, this is really cool. And now, this, so he bought it, read the book. Um, this is a type of guy who would never read a blog, never right. subscribe to a newsletter. But the fact that there's a book out there, yeah, he'd pick it up, check it out. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people like that. So it's a different market. I mean, I'll say this don't write a book to try and make money <laughs> yeah. you're never going to make <laughs> yeah um we so it's sold really well um it is sold uh, i mean if you look at stats on like what a, a book from a publisher sells in it's it's first year and over its lifetime we we've done multiples of that which is great um but still at the end of the day it's not much money
1: yeah and especially probably with the amount of time that you put into it too how long do you think, how many hours do you think you spent on it? You
2: know, I don't know. A um, lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. But, and so my, one thing I'm really good at is I can write like, I I can write like crazy and I could crank out content very fast. Um, so my process for writing is, um, I get a topic I am interested in writing about and You know, if I have to read or research, I'll do that. And then I think, okay, this is something I'm I'm familiar with now. So what I'll do is I'll go for a walk or I will go running. And in my head I I kind of um narrate what I would write to myself. So, you know, I'm kind of like writing this thing out loud in my head. And um I just kind of turn over that over the, you know, five or six miles and and then I'll come back and it could be a day later, a week later, um, I'll just remember what I kind of went over, and I'll just plop that all out into into a document. So it's like I I kind of pre-write it and pre-think it, and then I just just grind it out, and um, it works really well.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And how do you think writing has helped your, your investing? Because Jeff always says, um, you know, when people ask you, right, how to become a better investor, you oh, always yeah, tell, tell them, start a, start blog, a blog, or and, at least
0: write something. For, I mean, start a blog, because people won't write something just for themselves. Yeah, and but the, if they believe someone else is going to read it, they'll write down their reasons for buying. Yeah, it.
1: what's interesting, yeah. too, about blogging, I mean, you kind of are writing it for yourself. Like, Absolutely, it helps you formulate yeah. your thoughts and, and everything, but other people can benefit from it. As well, I mean, have you found that to be true with you as well?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, I I can't tell you the number of times where I got halfway through a post on a company that I thought, man, this company is awesome. This is this is a good investment, and I get halfway through and I'm writing it all out and I'm like, yeah, it really this this company really stinks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, but once I try to make the argument as to why you would invest in it, it's like, I, I don't know this. Yeah this is a, that's a hard sell. Um, and the same is true the opposite way. There's been times where I'm like, eh, this is just not, not that great. And I start to write it out and then it's like, oh, but you know, but there's also this and then this, and you know, it's like the infomercial, but wait, there's more. And, um, you know, I, I start to realize, wow, this is actually a really good opportunity. And, um, and so, writing really helps with that it it helps kind of focus you i think the other thing too that i learned very early on uh when i would write a a pitch i always wanted to be comprehensive and so it was like well you know here's all these details that i read about and research that are i think are important um Or not even important, but just like you should be aware of them because it should be comprehensive. And um, I realized that that, I was wasting my time. And so I read this book that I would highly recommend for anyone who writes. It's called On Writing Well, and it's kind of like the standard writing book. The book is endlessly entertaining. It's a book on writing. I mean, who thinks a book on writing is actually interesting to read, but it's an awesome book. Um, And... And I, I changed my writing style when I read that book. So I used to write like an, an investment thesis, and here's details to support that thesis. It's an argument. And I realized that um, that really maybe made sense for people who were trying to support their opinion. And I realized more what I needed to write was a story and to take people on a journey through something interesting, fascinating, why this might be worth their time. And in doing that, you leave out a ton of detail. And so you're only writing about the things that matter to the story you're telling. And so I changed, if you look back through the blog, um, the earlier post of these kind of investment theses, and then I changed more to an article style. And in um, it, at first I would have like a, you know, headings, like the balance sheet and then I'd write about the balance sheet. And then I, I realized when I was reading this book, that that was a crutch to my writing and that I should be able to transition between, um, different, different areas of my writing through, um, you know, through different sort of connecting sentences. And, and so I, it, maybe if you go back through this and, and you look at it, um, you could tell, but I mean, I, I focused a lot on my style, how I communicate. And, um, and so now I, I write, it's, it's like an article and, um, and that's exactly how I think about it. And it's, you know, you, you referenced Andrew's stories in the beginning and that's, that's exactly what it is. If there's no story, there's no article. It's not, not worth writing about. If the, if if you can't create a story, then you, you don't need to write about it.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. And you obviously are, are a great writer. What's going on at Complete Bank Data? I'm, I'm very curious to hear about this this uh, this company that you started and sort of, I guess, all about it.
2: Yeah, so we, we started doing um, <clears throat> tools for bank investors, right? So I thought, geez, if we had a great screener, this would be awesome if we had a way to compare banks better. Um and that's what we did. And then we. <clears throat> How long have you been down doing this for? That. Go ahead. How long
1: have you been doing this for?
2: So we initially launched in. Um, I, we started programming in probably 2012, launched it. 2012 or 2013? Um, maybe end of 2013, we launched it. And so we, we, I think we started at the beginning of 2013. So five years. Um, did all the bank investing stuff. Then, like I said, we doubled down and we got the software on, in the Bloomberg terminal. So uh, you could load up the, the terminal and um, use the Bloomberg's data feed with our tools on top, which was an awesome tool and really slick. Uh, but it was really hard to sell because we were in their app store. So it was like the Apple app store. And, um, all you could see was the number of views to your page. And then the number of people that clicked on, um, your pictures and, and then some people would trial the software and you were allowed to chat with them and try and sell them through chat, which is, that's a really hard way to sell. Sure. I would not recommend it. Um, The software is great. It's still sitting around somewhere. If anyone out there has uh, a Bloomberg and wants to hook in their data feed, uh, we could probably still do that. But you know, so that experiment kind of went poorly, and um, we ran into a bank who said, "Hey, we um, so." just as background, we're pulling in regulatory data, so like FDIC data, Fed data, SEC filings, and um, we build a comprehensive financial picture of a bank. So um, ran into uh, a bank who said, hey, we this is cool stuff, but I would actually like to know um, <clears throat> every single loan that a bank has. I want to know the person's name and details. And I said, well... We could, I don't know, maybe estimate that or something where they're located, what counties. He goes, no, there, there's got to be a way to do it. So we worked with them for, I don't know, year, year and a half. And we we built this. We figured out a way to actually get all those individual loan details, um, rates, and all this stuff. And um, so in doing that, it it sort of changed the direction of the business and um now, what we're doing is we're pulling in all of these on the ground details, and we've built a platform with the, a CRM in it, uh, workflows. Um, we've tied all of this stuff together, and it's a lot of it is more um, a market intelligence, market analysis, and a lead generation tool for bankers. So, um, you know, you you'd mentioned Frost Bank and um, we demo them because what we could do is you could log into our tool and you could pull up every single one of Frost's loans. And so I could see uh, who all their borrowers are. I could see, you know, the rate they're they're paying. I could see if it's a property loan, um, it's, you know, on a map. So we, for, there you know, there's a map of Texas with little pinpoints where all their loans are. You could click on it, you could zoom in, you could see you know, it's a warehouse and it's, um, you know, whatever the rate, whatever the term, it's variable interest. Um, and that's really powerful because uh, a bank who comes into this thing, who is, if you've got a bank who's interested in growing, you could say, I, I want to know uh, every business who bought a new property and paid cash because they, they might have paid cash to close the deal quickly, but they might want liquidity. And um you know, you could do that. Or you could say, uh, show me all of the companies in uh food processing in Austin that have five million more than five million million in revenue and have um you know an inventory credit line outstanding and have property that there's no loans on. And so you could pull that up and then um you've got the CEO's name, his email, and his phone number and and then at that point it becomes a, a, sales process. And so, you know, what we've done is we've dropped all of these leads in people's laps. And, um, a lot of that in the past was, it was hard work to find that and, you know, that prospecting. And so now we've, we've simplified the prospecting and, um, and put it in this, in this dashboard. Um, and so you could still do all the, the old bank research stuff, uh, um, you know, we still have that. You could do some really cool comparisons. You could do, um, all sorts of crazy stuff with it. And we're just joining all of this data. And so, um, we, we were working in Texas. It was our, our primary market. And now we're starting to, to sell this thing nationwide. It's so, um, it's kind of an interesting journey, you know, and it's, um, it's a, we built this platform. We could actually, um, any business could use this platform if they have data. Uh, we could marry data back and forth and um, put it into a really cool dashboard view. And it's, um, you know, since the platform exists, we're just putting the bank data, the mortgage data into it. Uh, but anything could could go in there. And um, so it's a it's it's really cool. There's a ton of potential for this thing. Um, you know, the deal sizes are compared to what we were selling before they're, you know, 10 to a hundred times bigger. Um, but at the same time, the sales process is, is 10 to a hundred times longer. So, um, you know, so are you like going around demoing
1: out your, your software to them then?
2: Yeah. I mean, so it's, um, you know, it's just a, it's kind of a typical sales process. So we, we prospect, um, so we're sending emails, we do cold calls, we do, um, we've done some cold, um, you know, like uh, mailers to target banks, uh, target loan and officers, uh, follow up on those things. We try and get them to a demo. And from a demo, um, you know, that really begins the, the more detailed sales process. So typically what happens is uh, someone looks at a demo and um, they will either say, this is cool, but it's not for us, which is fine. We want to know that early. Um, or they'll say, yeah, this, this seems like something we could use. Um, and then we do another demo with, uh, usually a, a senior executive. And from there, then, um, you know, you're talking about kind of what's going to, the financial details of the deal, um, contractual details, and, um, and then it takes a while to close and, and get someone ramped up. So, you know, for, i guess for anyone who isn't familiar with the sales process you know there's a lot of moving parts that are never thought about and so one is like the the contractual terms um you know we have standard contracts we use uh what i have found is everyone thinks that they are an expert on contracts and wants to make their own changes and adjustments um just because they do and i don't know why this is uh but you know, you send out a contract to someone, they, and then it's like, well, this looks good, but let's schedule a call to, to take a look at some of those details in it, because I had some thoughts about changing things. And, you know, that, that stuff becomes costly, um, especially if it's big changes, because then you have to get your lawyer involved. Um, but, like, that's just part of the process. And, you know, we've had, we've had things where um, the contract was agreed on. And everything was agreed on, and it it still falls apart in the last minute. And so, until you've got a signed contract with money and you're rolling, um, you know, nothing's guaranteed. And um, it's it's been quite the learning experience. You know, I, I don't have like I said, I don't have a background in sales. Um, although every single person in my family except for me does sales, and um, I've been told I've been selling my whole life, so nice. um, I guess it's just natural I fell into this, but all the way back to
1: you asking to shovel some driveways, right
2: yeah, it's uh you know
1: I grew up in Chicago, a, so I know what that's like where Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago, so I mean our backgrounds okay. are very similar I, I was doing that as well, twenty bucks per driveway for me
2: yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I started out. it was funny. I remember this the first time I did it, we were worried about um not getting a you know someone to not getting work so we we're like well five bucks for a driveway and they're like oh five dollars yeah sure you you can shovel right away <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow this is that's crazy so the next house we were like it's ten dollars to shovel your driveway same thing they're like "Oh, ten bucks yes <laughs> you know yeah, sure. start right now it's and then so um, we went to fifteen dollars we started to hit resistance there so that was kind of the it was like okay that's that's a good price um and there was a good life lesson in that.
1: I was gonna say, I guess it's kind of an early example of pricing power, right? It's 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 funny, yeah. and the people that are listening that are in like California and Florida, they they have no idea what we're talking about, even Texas no. too.
2: Yeah, Texas, you you guys don't you you don't have that. No, but the the snow. I mean, even look here in Pennsylvania, we don't. Um, this is, it's I think our average temperature is like thirty six or thirty seven throughout the winter. So um, in Cleveland, we would get snow, and then it just hangs around for a long time. And in Pittsburgh, even just being a couple hundred miles south, it's, um, it'll snow three or four inches and three days later, it's just slush and it's, it's like 35 out. So, um, it's, it, to me, this is a great environment. I'm like, this is, you know, it's not bad. And then you could drive an hour East and you're in the mountains and you're a couple thousand feet higher and the snow sticks around. So you could ski all winter long and then, um, you know, come back home where it's just brown.
1: Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So I kind of want to bring this to an end here. And, and one of the questions that I always like to ask people is, what do you think is a way that individuals, and particularly the listeners, can improve as investors?
2: It's a good question. I, um, you know, so I think the best way to improve anything is by doing it. And, um, and also, perfect is the enemy of good. And so if you kind of put both of those things together, uh, there's investing attracts a lot of people who are meticulous, detail-oriented, people who, you know, they'll really get caught up on on the details of the financials and they can't get over a hump of, you know, but inventory accounting changed, you know, the method changed. And so I would say, number one, you have to just start investing. Uh, Number two (coughs) is to not get hung up on Look at the big picture, right? And so you say, do those details matter to the big picture? And so, like what I had said earlier, investing is all about probabilities. What is the probability of a loss versus a gain? Is there a greater chance that you're going to make 100 percent on your money, or versus losing five percent? So you know, say some company trading at, um, I don't know, half a book value and a you know ten times earnings, right? Um, so you say. With this company sure their results are mediocre and is it likely is it more or less likely that their results will continue to be mediocre in the future well if it's more likely then you have to say then that means it's less likely that they're going to destroy their own value and if they're not going to destroy their own value then it's it you know the chance of it being worth book value or something higher is a lot greater than the chance of it being worth zero. So, you know, it's a probabilities thing. And when you kind of focus things into that filter, what you could then do is you say, well, let's look at the numbers, You know, the numbers are what supports that. And it's, you know, does it matter how they, if they do LIFO or FIFO for their inventory, if that's the big picture you're going into, it, it might not. And, um, you know, especially if it, if that's a minute difference, don't get hung up on that. Uh, sometimes those things do matter, though, and um, you know sometimes it actually does matter, and you just you have to figure out in that big picture of the probability and the price where what matters to that and what what's the significance of that, and so if you're kind of focused on that end result, you know I don't I don't just read about companies just to to kind of pass my time, um, like I said or you had said, I, I have four boys, um, they're young, they're active. I have a lot of things I like to do. Um, and one of them isn't just reading about random companies because I mean, I I don't have enough time to do that. So you know when I'm reading about a company, it's because I think this is potentially worth an investment. And so I'm always trying to say, I'm trying to justify, is it actually worth an investment or is it worth passing on and I should be looking at something else that's worth an investment? And so having that focus um, keeps me moving forward. And then within that focus, I say, you know, what's the probability? Is it is it more or less likely? And, um, and sometimes you hit these pockets like the Japanese net nets or the banks, um, and we're going to hit other ones in the future. We don't know what they are, where you have a whole industry or a whole country where um, you say, is it? you know, at some point, these companies in Japan have to be worth more than their net cash. And, and if they aren't, well, net cash is still a good downside. So you could just go all in on something like that. And if you're patient, it, it always corrects. And so it's like, you just, it, it's all the, you know, if the price is is attractive enough, I'll buy some, you know, piece of junk at, at one or two times earnings, uh, if the price is bad, I, I won't. And, um, you know, so I, I kind of keep that big picture in mind. Uh, investing for me is at the end of the day, it's, it's about making money. Um, I enjoy it, but I, you know, I enjoy other things. Like I said, I've got those Lego bricks. Um, you know, I, if I never assembled another Lego in my life, I, I wouldn't really care. Um, but, <laughs> I'm doing it because, you know, we can make some money on it. So, um, who knows what the future brings with that, but that, that's kind of how I look at all of these things.
1: No, that is, that is awesome, Nate. And, you know, Jeff and I, we can't thank you enough for coming on. I think this is a a great discussion and a lot of people are going to get a lot of out of it. How can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out to chat?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, first of all, thanks for getting, for having me on. This is, this has been fun. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, you could email me at N T O B I K at complete and, um, shoot me an email there. And if you're interested in setting up a phone call or whatever, um, we could, my phone numbers in my email. So, um, you get that. Perfect. So and, again, and, and then his, also his... the, um, oddballstocks.com is the blog. And, uh, bank sites, complete The book is on Amazon. Uh, if you go to oddball stocks, there's little links at, at the top for all the different things. So, um, one for the newsletter, one for the, the bang for the book. So you could get to everything from there
1: perfect yeah, and and I'll put all those links also in your email in the show notes so everyone uh, be sure to check that out so again thank you so much Nate for coming on um, again I think it was it was an awesome discussion and people are gonna get a lot out of it and everybody else thank you so much for tuning in with us here today at the focus compounding podcast um, if you do like what mr. Jeff and I are doing and we do have other individuals that we are going to bring on uh, you want to thank us feel free to give us a rating and review on the podcast app on your iPhone that does help spread the word also Jeff Jeff does send out a weekly memo, and Mm -hmm. if you do want to get access to that, you can go to the focuscompounding.com website, and on the homepage, you'll see a spot to enter in your email, and that's where you can um, get access to Jeff's memos. Other than that, thank you very much for tuning in. Everybody have a great week, and we will see you in the next podcast.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.